Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. Sarah Chase was a reporter for NPR, working in Afghanistan after the fall of the Taliban. Then, in early 2002, she decided to give up her career in journalism to help rebuild the country. She joined the NGO world and eventually founded an Afghan-based NGO herself. And during this time, while living in the former Taliban stronghold of Kandahar, she became an advisor to the top U.S. generals in Afghanistan. These experiences informed her prize-winning book, Thieves of State, Why Corruption Threatens Global Security, which, as the name suggests, examines the corrosive effect of corruption in post-conflict countries and beyond. We kick off talking about the problem of corruption before discussing Sarah's fascinating life and career. She's now with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where she is a senior associate and still writing and advising on issues of corruption. Uh, This is a great conversation. I think you will love it. I so appreciated learning from Sarah, someone whose work I've, I've read for a long time, and learning more about how she made that transition from the world of journalism to the world of social entrepreneurship and now as a think tank scholar. As always, please visit globaldispatchespodcast.com to get in touch with me if you have ideas or suggestions of people I should interview or topics you would like me to cover. And I do want to emphasize that I I do read all your emails and I do, to every extent possible, try to take your suggestions and and recommendations into account. I do this for you guys and I want to serve you as best I can. So uh, with that, just let me know what you would like to learn about in the world because chances are I'm interested in it too. And now here is Sarah Chase. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I find that when you scratch the surface of many of the really serious problems that are besetting the world at the moment. You scratch the surface a little bit and you're going to come up with corruption. So um, I wrote a book called Thieves of State that focuses specifically on the kind of security implications of corruption. So this is a time when, you know, we're seeing violent insurgency exploding in a number of places where you had you know, six revolutions uh, in the last five years or seven, you know, um, where people are overthrowing their governments. And then there are various security crises that devolve from that, where you've got very significant homicide rates, for example, in Latin America uh, leading, you know, and a lot of these crises are leading to migrations of people out of these areas. But when you Look at the root causes of a lot of them. You find corruption underlying it, um, including sort of uh, with respect to violent extremism, which was sort of where I began my research. It turns out that there is a, a fairly constant strain within human history when there is an, uh, an excessively corrupt uh, sort of governmental structure. Some people will turn to what you could call um, militant puritanical religion, mm-hmm. because the feeling is the only way to address the sort of depravity of the of the public powers is by turning toward um, a very strict moral code imposed, if necessary, by force. And, and we see seems, this. Go it ahead. Seems, it was. It sort of seems to um, impress, like a, a really profound sense of of justice, right? When you can appeal to, you know, a a moral authority that is beyond this world. 
Yes. So I think there's a justice element to it, but there's also a moral purity element to it. So if you think about in the United States, the history, early history of the United States with the Puritans, I mean, they were actually rejecting uh, what they saw was a corrupted sort of church-state mix in a lot of their countries, be it you know, Northern Europe or even what later became the United Kingdom. And if you just look at the clothes they wore, you know, it's kind of similar to the way jihadis like to dress now. You know, it's ostentatiously sober, um, no drinking, no partying, no dancing. So there's... It's 17th century chic, I think, is the term. Yeah, 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 yeah. And And it has this whole kind of cultural... Um, spillover that I think we're really seeing again today. Now, I don't think these movements are identical, and I don't think this is the only way that peoples may react against uh, corruption, but it's a one interesting one. And then you look at the sort of disintegration post-Arab Spring revolutions, and frankly, getting out into the street until you topple your government is a pretty extreme um stance to take. And then, you know, when revolutions happen, all bets are kind of off. And so it's not a big surprise that those have developed into security crises. You can, again, look at the relation, you know, the sort of development of transnational criminal superpowers, I think you could call them in Latin America, um, uh, narcotics trafficking organizations that are hand in glove with a number of the governments down there. Um, and for example, again, in the United States, the issue of the migration or, or, or fleeing of young people, particularly from Central America, was often talked about in the media anyway, exclusively as an issue to do with um, uh, gang violence and gang extortion. Well, it took me about a day on the ground in Honduras to figure out that the police were basically subcontracting their extortion, their corrupt extortion of, of, of you know, bribes that, that in many other countries, and there also, that they stop people at checkpoints or whatever and take bribes from them. Well, they in Honduras, they're uh, subcontracting a lot of that work to the gangs. So the gang extortion was in part police extortion. Um, so I just and then finally, the environmental crisis. I mean, um, the frantic rush to continue extracting um, not just sources of energy, but sources of mineral and even, frankly, sometimes, quote, green energy um, to capture those revenue streams is often exacerbating, you know, the decimation of um, of tropical forests, carbon economy that we're all living in and things like that. So I just, I, I don't want to sound like the person who has a hammer and everything's a nail, but it's really remarkable the degree to which this phenomenon is driving some of the most serious crises the world is facing so at the moment. are there good examples uh, from your reporting, from your research of countries that have rather effectively stamped out corruption that have suffered from the problems that you just described? Not many, because partly this is a relatively recent phenomenon, not that corruption is a recent phenomenon, but the crystallization of what I would call sophisticated kleptocratic networks that tie together elements of the public sector, the private sector, and even the criminal sector, really is a phenomenon that has taken off uh, based on my research since about, I would say, the mid-1990s. So tied to the dissolution of the Soviet Union and those post-Soviet states. I think that had something to do with it. I also think, which is which is related. I think the sort of Reagan-Thatcher ideology of amassing money is a good, you know, marker of social status and success, um, which has just been taken over with uh, abandon by the leadership of a lot of um, of a lot of developing countries. And so, in terms of how to address this, I really think the incentive structures have to change, and that means there is a cultural and even ethical. Um, underpinning, which has to be, we need to go back, all of our societies need to go back to truly honoring and rewarding other types of virtues, not just the collection of money. 
Um, and it means we also need to be honoring other ways of contributing to society apart from pure uh, competition. I'm not saying that competition is bad, but when you start competing over how many zeros you have in your bank account, that is a, an infinite prospect. There's no lid on that. And those zeros are not without um, effect on the rest of the world, be it, you know, Wells Fargo pushing people to um, fraudulently create new accounts that then ordinary people are suffering because they get fines or be it, you know, um, the displacement of subsistence farmers from land that, you know, Ethiopian kleptocrats want to plant with cut flowers for the European market so they can capture that revenue stream. Um, these are not victimless crimes. Uh, and I think that, so I think the beginning of how you address this has to be a change of attitude. It can no longer be seen as a victimless crime. It can no longer be seen as, you know, quote, the cost of doing business or, quote, you know, the grease that oils the machine. It, it's got to be understood as um, an extremely damaging phenomenon that, that really requires um, – it requires uh, – a kind of multiplicity of approaches. Mm -hmm. I think the only way to get the better of it is by, by a combination of local demand and external uh, sort of supporting fires, if you will, so that, um, you know, development assistance is not provided into these environments blind to who's capturing it. So that, you know, institutions like fancy universities don't award, you know, um, honorary degrees on kleptocratic officials. So it's seen almost as damning as massive human rights violations because that's what it really is so it's a, it's a cultural shift uh, you know more than anything yeah, else that yeah yeah that this. then leads to that's right that then leads to concomitant changes in a whole array of policies um, from the outside and from the inside what i would say is people have to look beyond toppling their corrupt officials because these networks are incredibly resilient. And that, I think, is the biggest lesson out of the Arab Spring, is that people were not foresight, uh, you know, sort of foresightful enough to see that just knocking off a couple of heads of networks is not going to change the underlying problem. Right. You really have to focus on institutional reforms. Well, I mean, it's probably fair to say that greed is an enduring aspect of human nature. Um, sure. I, I suppose then what you're advocating is make greed more sort of socially cost uh, than Thank it you. Is today. Yeah. Huh. Well, this is the part where you're supposed to expand. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. Well, I would um, love to, to switch gears uh, and, sure. and learn a little bit more about you and where this, this passion, this interest in, in global affairs and in global politics comes from. So where are you from? I grew up uh, outside of Boston, Massachusetts, okay. um, daughter of number four, kid of five, um, daughter of two professionals who themselves were interested in global oh, affairs. What did my your parents father, do? My father was an international lawyer, and my mother has had an extremely varied career, but has been migrating increasingly over the course of her career toward the global affairs side of things, and in particular... They actually wrote a book together. Uh, they wrote a couple of books together, but one had to do with um, the changing nature of sovereignty. Huh. And another had to do, and this is back in the 90s, with how, you know, governments ought to plan ahead of doing major interventions. Now, I've never read either of those books, so I can't <laughs> say that the substance actually affected my career choices. But clearly, that was the environment. My father was legal advisor to the State Department in the Kennedy administration. Oh, okay. um, so, and we traveled a fair bit when I was young. So that I was just always aware of 
the rest of the world. So uh, you, your your dad was an international lawyer working in the State Department, like the legal affairs officer guy? Um, he was the legal advisor, so, yeah, so like under Harold Kennedy. Coe and then used to be? And, and... Harold Coe was a student of my dad's. Ah, there you go. Um, was one of, as was Anne-Marie Slaughter. So he's actually kind of planted a lot of his folks around. Um, he's passed away now. But yes, uh, he had the position in the Kennedy administration that Harold Coe had in the uh, Obama administration. And, and I uh, read this on Wikipedia, so I don't know if it's true, but your, your mother was a top-ranking Air Force official? She was. She was um, had been looked at to be the general counsel to the Defense Department, um, and then that was, you know, the sort of split of the positions was made differently, but they were so impressed with her, although she didn't really have that much um, either international or certainly military experience. So that was a kind of bolt from the blue, and she really loved that job. She was uh, first manpower and installations and then became the undersecretary of the Air Force. I mean, I have to imagine that this must have also been some sort of gender groundbreaking uh, position as absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And she, you know, had always been gender groundbreaking. And it was an interesting family to grow up in because my father's mother was the third female admitted to the Chicago bar. So it had never dawned on my father that he would not be married to a professional woman. And so for me growing up, Gender was just never an issue whatsoever. Um, as a matter of fact, sometimes that would irritate my mother because it was like she felt like I wasn't enough of a feminist because she had so well, you know, kind of blazed the trail that I almost didn't have to. Um, but yes, at that time, there were very few women in the Pentagon, and she was yeah, quite yeah, committed yeah. to trying to uh, expand the opportunities and including, I mean, back in those days, don't forget, that's the Cold War. And so there were, the MX missile was a big deal in those days. And she was insistent that women be able to serve in the missile silos. And of course, you can mm-hmm. imagine back then that was like, I mean, oh my God, a boy men. and a girl, yeah. right? A boy and a girl sitting down there in a missile silo. What are they going to get up, get up to, you know, and all this. But it was so important for career advancement mm-hmm. at that stage that it became quite similarly to all of the issues about women in combat today. So, I mean, I just have to imagine that, you know, the, the, the dinner, dinner room yes. conversations <laughs> must have been pretty fascinating. Two lawyers, two <laughs> professionals, lots of opinions around the, around the table. I was, when she was in the um, Pentagon, I was in high school and I was an intern in Senator Kennedy's office. And we would have dinner parties and, uh, you know, I would get asked, as people often do, you know, what did you learn in school today kind of questions. And I would come back with something about the START Treaty because that's what I was working (laughs) on, you know. I mean, it was just if you wanted to be part of the conversation, you essentially had to be an adult interested in politics and foreign policy. Uh, and and so I have to imagine that informed your choices when you went to school and and the kind of career path that you know you you set yourself upon. Yes, I mean, with some interlude, I would say I spent quite a bit of time um, focused on race relations in this country. Uh, I would say when I was um, in my mid to late twenties, um, that was something I had, I, I did a piece of work to do with the crack academic, uh, sorry. I did a piece of work to do with the crack, uh, epidemic in those years, which is like the late eighties. And it was a real shock. Um, I spent some time in Kansas city. I then went um, into rural Mississippi and to just understand how bad the situation still was at and, that time. Mm-hmm. So, so I did get quite involved in those types of domestic issues, but then I went to work for monitor radio at the time, which, mm-hmm. um, was at the time, if I can put it this way, something like a second string NPR. I mean, it was a public radio network. Um, well, let's, let's, and that yeah. was very foreign policy oriented. Well, well, let's go back. How, how did you get your start in journalism? I mean, you went to Harvard, I, I see. I did. And I was a history major and I was sort of going off in the direction of being a professional academic mm-hmm. and bailed. I mean, I just, it was like, I suddenly, as often happens to 
all but dissertations, um, I realized I didn't want to spend the rest of my life inside the brick walls of an academic institution. When and was the moment the you had that realization? Like, what were you studying at the time? You know what I think it was? I, so I was studying medieval Islam. Um, and, you know, had been a history major, and then I was doing graduate work in, um, to get a PhD in medieval Islamic history. And what actually did it was this job working on the drug, po- on the, on the drug issue, uh, which I took as a summer job kind of off the cuff. It didn't have anything to do with what I was working on. And I just got absolutely slammed by how considerable the issues were that needed to get addressed that I just could not see myself going back into the kind of rarefied academic community that I had, that I had been in. Um, it's been really interesting to see how that background has woven back through my life as it's gone forward. But at the time I experienced it as a complete shift and I didn't have the slightest idea what I was going to do. Um, I'd always been interested in journalism. I hadn't done it, if you will, as a student, because partly again, because you know, you're working as an intern in Senator Kennedy's office, and the idea of getting on your college newspaper and writing about the English department, I was too stuck up to, you know, it felt like a waste of time. Uh, I, I think that was wrong looking back, but that was my attitude at the time, is it just wasn't consequential enough. As a result, I didn't have the kind of background I needed to get a newspaper job or something like that, but I did get a job as a researcher for Monitor Radio. Mm-hmm. And um, radio at the time was still a fairly undeveloped uh, medium. Not, I mean, NPR existed, Monitor Radio uh, did also, but you didn't have the incredible stuff that's been going on recently, like This American Life and mm-hmm. the great documentary programs or StoryCorps or the CBC's or excellent, podcasts, you know, like this one. or podcasts. That didn't exist at all either. Mm-hmm. So it still was, a, mm-hmm. you know, a kind of industry that you could get into um, by being at the right place at the right so, time, even, and that didn't necessarily mean being, um, you know, in a war zone. So what were some of the first global stories, uh, international stories that you were working on at the time? Well, as a researcher, I was providing research to everybody. I was shocked. I mean, this was the first Gulf War. Mm-hmm. And I was really shocked at the lack of a desire to get any kind of a serious understanding of the environment. I mean, I had just come out of a grad, you know, a graduate program at Harvard University on the Middle East. I could have gotten anybody into, you know, a meeting room at Monitor Radio to provide some background. I mean, my own professor was a, is a specialist on Iran and, and Shiites in the region. So, that applies to Iraq also, you know, so it was like, I can get Matahada in here to talk to, and no one was interested. They wanted newspaper articles. They wanted like the latest gouge. And that I found really distressing. Um, but so that was kind of my, my day job. Then what I would do was a couple of pieces that were related, some of them not even um, particularly breaking, but Part of my work, my undergraduate work, this is going to sound crazy, but it was about how scientific knowledge was transmitted in medieval Islam. Okay. Um, that's, a good, so, that's a good PhD uh, topic. Or, or yeah, right. Topic. That's, that's like <laughs> Are you trying professor. to say it's like, <laughs> it's like arcane? But, you know, I mean, we all do know about Ar- Arabic mathematics and, right. and medicine was way ahead of Europe. And so my question was, how did people learn and teach science? And, um, but as a result, again, I had a lot of um, contacts in that rather rarefied world. So one of the first pieces I actually put together was about um, how, how the need to um, correctly um, identify the opening day of Ramadan, right? The month-long Ramadan fast, which is a moon, um, moon-defined um, uh, period, how that helped spur the development of Arabic uh, astronomy, which was really sophisticated. So that was a really fun kind of um, feature, I guess I would say, feature yeah. story that allowed me to get beyond the sort of knee-jerk um, just 
you know, oh, these funny people fast for a month uh, yeah. and and use that as a way into a very dynamic culture. Again, don't forget, we're talking like 1989, 1990, when most Americans didn't even, I mean, just the understanding that Islam mm-hmm. even existed was way less than it is today. Um, so how did you, I, I suppose, progress in your journalism career throughout the 90s? I, kn- I know you worked for NPR for a, a long time. Uh, did you work for NPR during the, the Balkans conflict? I did. So what happened was uh, Monitor Radio um, expanded itself into, sorry, Monitor Broadcasting expanded itself into collapse. Um, it tried to open a, a kind of CNN-style television channel and just didn't have the personnel or content required to make that happen. So I had the opportunity to to basically voluntarily be laid off mm-hmm. with a pretty good severance package. And by this time, I really needed to get out of America. I just, I felt constrained. Um, and so I didn't move to the Middle East, which a lot of people suggested that I do. I wanted to go to France. And um, why France? Uh, I speak French and had always been a bit of a Francophile, and that just was the place I wanted to go. And that was always what I had heard about going overseas, is go to a place that moves you and do what you would have done if you were in America. So that's what I I decided it was this time or never was the time to make the jump to being a reporter from being what I had Mm -hmm. been before, which was support. Um, That was a little more difficult than I had hoped it would be. There was a bit more technical reporting um, things that I could have learned while I was at home base that I didn't. And so I learned on the, it's just technical stuff like bring extra batteries and, you know, uh, uh, things like that and how you go about kind of rooting out interesting stories rather than I was much more in a response mode when I was researching. Um, so what were the stories so that, in, in the, your early days in, in France that you were covering? The the stories that really interested me were labor stories because we didn't really have a labor movement in America and it was really well, we did in the 1930s. Yes, you got it. <laughs> yeah. So it was really remarkable to me to um, experience a dynamic labor movement. I mean, it was on its way to being less dynamic, but it was pretty dynamic, and it was also very much more collectively focused than, you know, the way our economy is is set up. And I was very interested in that. So I did, I covered every major strike there was. I covered those. I also covered things like healthcare mm-hmm. and what having healthcare, you know, how the healthcare system worked and also childcare. I remember doing um, really, to me, a very interesting story about uh, where I focused on both American women who were living in France and French women who had lived in America and what the different focus on or the different provision of childcare meant for them in their families and their careers. So part of what I was trying to do was get beyond the, oh, these are funny people who talk funny and, you know, wear funny hats to what are some of the ways that France has addressed problems that the United States also faces that are different from how the United States has has addressed those so, problems. You know, have, having witnessed, uh, I think, what you call the ethos of collectivism, uh, you know, in France as, as a reporter, and then later having studied corruption, I mean, do you think collectivism is almost an antidote to corruption? I think it can be. I mean, obviously, in the in the communist world, it didn't prove to be, but the communist world is a was a very specific version of the ethos of collectivism. And that was also very important to me is to understand there are lots of countries that are on the continuum between the sort of excess atomization that you see in in the U.S. and, and to some extent in the U.K. and, you know, five-year plans. There's a whole range of other ways of choosing to invest society's surplus that's more helpful to more people um, that lie in the middle. And I do think that um, a combination of a more collectivist approach, but also democratic checks and balances and oversight um, are in combination a helpful um, a, a helpful potential antidote. Now, what's interesting is France 
um, I would say culturally, is not as upset about corruption as some of the more sort of Protestant, if you will, Northern European countries. Um, and so, for example, until very recently, particularly overseas, businesses could actually write off bribes huh. as a tax break to get a tax break for bribes they had paid to get certain markets overseas. Um, that has to do with, I mean, the French often see Americans as excessively moralistic, both with respect to our sexual mores and with respect to things like this. And mm. so, you know, there are cultural dynamics that play. I, 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 I hate it when people say, you know, oh, corruption is just part of the culture here or there or in, a, you know, in this or that country. I've never found that to be the case in, in the very corrupt countries that I look at. But I, I, I think it's impossible to deny that there, mm -hmm. there is a sort of public ethos and, um, um, you know, sort of, uh, as I say, cultural attitudes have some bearing. Um, so, uh, how did you spend then the, the Balkan wars? You were a reporter for NPR at the time living in France or were you spending most of your time in, in the Balkans? So I started picking up the NPR string actually, um, when princess Diana was killed in a car accident in France. And at that time, the NPR stringer was, um, back in the U.S., and I picked up that string. And then when she decided to relocate to the U.S., um, I, I, I became an NPR stringer, and it was right when um, the Kosovo negotiations were going mm -hmm. on. Yeah, so this is like and 1998, so 1999. Yes. And I covered that very intensively and then quite naturally, you know, followed that story first to NATO headquarters um, for a month and then on the ground to um, Albania and then Kosovo. So, so I missed, if you will, the whole Bosnia war. I did not cover that. So um, you were in Albania um, when the, the, the bombs, you know, the U.S. and NATO started bombing Serbia? That's correct. And that was really my first, not when it started. Mm -hmm. So the very first bombs, I was covering it from NATO headquarters in Brussels. But then within, I think I, I had that for a month. And then the whole rest of it, I was on the ground in, um, I was covering the negotiations, but they really fizzled out very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and then what I had more insight into was coalition warfare. And the challenges of trying to do anything in a concerted way in a 19, what was then a 19-member coalition. And I remember uh, then it was General Wesley Clark, who was Sacker, the Supreme Allied Commander Europe, who really had to bring the decision-making process down from 19 to 6 on particular um, uh, particular targeting. And again, I think we've now become so inured to being at war that we forget, you know, this was really the first time in a while we had been at war. The other thing in retrospect that I, I'm distressed about is the lack, I mean, this was the same year that, that Rwanda was going on. Mm -hmm. And the disparity in, um, or I guess, you know, I guess it's not quite the same year. Yeah, it was 1994 it was Rwanda, 99, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but the disparity in reaction was um, pretty remarkable. Um, and so that really troubled me. I mean, France had played a significant role in Rwanda, and I didn't, I wasn't on it. I just was not on it. And that's something that I really regretted in retrospect. Um, then I was on the ground, and that was really my first experience of anything close to combat reporting. Um, and it, began a feeling that I had been experiencing even earlier in covering the Algerian civil war that, God, I'm making my living off of people's drama and I'm not responsible for the outcome, you know? And it was getting tougher and tougher for me to play this outsider role. And, the, you know, I mean, I understood that how I reported had an impact on how the U.S. was going to respond to these things, but that's a kind of triangulated impact. And I just felt increasingly uncomfortable not 
playing a more active and concrete role in some of these dramas. Yet you and stuck that's with why, it, right? I, well, I did, but then I, I actually, you know, was troubled enough that um, I left reporting initially in the summer of 2001, and then 9-11 happened. And I know what the foreign desk looks like when there's something this big. So I called up NPR's foreign desk. So it was like a month or two, a couple of months later, mm-hmm. um, and said, hey, you put me back in the lineup, um, and which they did. But I really had moved pretty far internally in the direction of wanting to participate in the reconstruction of a post-conflict situation rather than just reporting just on it. about it. Was there and a specific so then, moment where that crystallized in, in you? It built up over time. Mm-hmm. And I would say the progression was Algeria, the Balkans, and then and Afghanistan. Afghanistan. So when did you arrive and in Afghanistan? I arrived in country on December, I think it was 9th, 2001. But I was covering the border. So I asked to be put into the lineup and focused on the South. I knew enough to know that although Kabul was technically the capital of the country, that the real seat of power had been in Kandahar. And so I asked to be posted to the south, not not the sort of coming into Kabul folks. And, and I think that was absolutely the right decision. What was Kandahar like when you arrived there? Um, just uh, I suppose it must have been immediately after the fall of the Taliban. It was. Um and it was really remarkable. I mean, the place is a kind of windswept desert city, um, mostly mud-walled buildings. It's not as um, visually extraordinary as, let's say, a Yemeni city might be. But um, on a plateau, you come down into it from a ridge, a very rocky ridge of hills, and you sort of sweep in. And none of the people I was driving with, you know, as one often is, a driver and an interpreter. And I had stopped at the border. I was had made friends with some of the militia proxies of the uh, of the American forces, and you know, had stopped to check in with them. And they had sort of detailed a little bodyguard to me. It was all a bit, also kind of play acting in a funny way, um, which I came to understand later. It really was the American bombing that that caused the collapse of the Taliban, but they sort of needed forces on the ground. So there was this kind of ragtag, you know, motley a crowd of various militias who were galloping in, but, you know, weren't particularly a, an effective fighting force in any kind of way. And, and they just sort of assumed that people with stature need bodyguards. <laughs> and I mean, it was pretty wild. And we were riding around and collecting weapons and, you know, establishing a presence in various places. It was, it was pretty, um, it was pretty wild. And, um, one of my friends had become like a police, uh, precinct captain or something like that. And he was also very, um, um, candid about this. All he said, we, I got into this fight, you know, to topple the Taliban, but, we lived through the warlord period, and I am not in favor of the warlords, you know, taking control again. Like, what are warlords like me doing in charge here? That was literally what he said to me. It was, it was. He said, "We, I came in here to help there be a, a decent government that listens to the people. That's not the Taliban in of educated people in power here. I should not be running around in control." And, and this um, was a period of relative stability, too, I would imagine, yes, or relative security, yes. I should say, at least. Yes, that's exactly right. But what was interesting was the the whole sort of corruption issue very, very quickly became evident because these militias were shaking people down. And when I started having conversations with young people very early in 2002 about what they were worried about, they would say security, but they weren't worried about the Taliban. They were worried about their own police who were shooting them, you know, to get a bribe or to steal a bicycle or whatever. And they were very upset about the kind of free-for-all atmosphere, which over the years then crystallized into 
the kind of structured corruption that I've been really researching, you know, for I'd say about the last five years. So um, at what point in your time in Afghanistan uh, did you make the leap again away from journalism and towards wanting to be an active participant in uh, the reconstruction of the country? Very quickly. Very, very quickly. So um, was there a I, moment I, that, that, that yes, made you? No question at all. I um, uh, passed off to uh, Steve Inskeep, who is now the morning edition host at National Public Radio. He came in behind me, I think it was in um, early January 2002. Um, and as I was leaving, um, I stopped off in Quetta, Pakistan to have dinner with President Karzai's uncle, who had been one of my sources during, you know, usually, almost always off the record sources, but particularly about the cultural environment and stuff like that. And we had dinner. And as he walked me to the door, he said, wouldn't you come back and help us? And I said, yes. I mean, it was one of these absolute, you know, you, you talk before you think, you know, like, you know, you think with your mouth, I guess, is mm -hmm. the is the expression. Like the opportunity you've really, been waiting for for years just finally presented itself. It crystallized, you mm -hmm. know, I mean, because you make opportunities. But here somebody asked me the question and I had to say yes or no. And, and the answer was fully formed. Then the question became how. And that was a much more complicated um, process of figuring out how, because he then got appointed to be ambassador in like Eastern Europe. And suddenly, you know, King Uncle, which was his name, was, you know, um, off someplace else. And he sort of passed me off to President Karzai's older brother, whose name is Kayum. Um, who was trying to build some kind of NGO, and I said, okay, well, I'll come in as as um, field director. But he was extraordinarily vague in terms of what he thought this NGO was or what it could do. I had absolutely no experience in this field. So this is not a course of action that I would necessarily mm -hmm. advise to people. It's a bit arrogant to assume that just because, you know, I'm a college-educated Westerner who has, you know, former Peace Corps volunteer and stuff like that, but who who has goodwill doesn't mean that I am equipped um, to perform mm -hmm. effectively or to add value in this kind of a situation. And I would say it took me about two to three years to figure out um, the lay of the land. And that's a very important, um, I'd like to dwell on that for a moment. Yeah, um, uh, I was in the Peace Corps, and the Peace Corps is a two-year commitment. So I went into this with, in my mind, this is a two-year commitment, minimum. Like, you know, I was telling myself, it's not the rest of your life. You can come back after two years. But it wasn't, you get to go and turn around in six months. Um, but it really took me, I would say, beyond the end of two years to start to get an accurate understanding of the kind of I would say the political economy and how you interact in trying to help the population, how you interact with an environment, you have got to know what the underlying structure of the political environment so, is. Otherwise, you may be, you know, exacerbating some of the problems. So what did this NGO um, purport to do and, and how did you realize <laughs> that it wasn't necessarily living up to its objectives? Um, it was a little bit all over the map. Um, we call it was called Afghans for Civil Society, and we huh. did a number of different um, uh, kind of um, initiatives, including you know a socioeconomic study of the Helmand Valley region ahead of you know changes to the canal system, including a women's income generation program, including a radio station. Um, and the really important thing that I didn't quite understand is the degree to which the Karzais wanted to be, I mean, the Karzais are kleptocrats, and they wanted to really run the whole South, and they wanted to capture the economic benefits, and they wanted to maintain their grip on power, and they wanted to, um, yeah, really so, capture the revenue streams, all of them. And, and part of that is served by, you know, affecting how people think, and that's including foreigners as well as locals. And um, it really took me a while to figure that so out. W was there a moment when you realized that the, the NGO you're helping to run was really like a vehicle for their kleptocracy? I think I started figuring it out in the summer of 2003, but it took me a while. It really did, because I... I mean, on some level, it's sort of willful blindness. And this is something that I've seen, 
consistently in the U.S. government. And I mean, it took the U.S. government really eight years to begin waking up to it. Um, and I see it in development actors who somehow assume that because their intentions are good, um, the results are good. And they see corruption as a, um, you know, as I say, as a kind of necessary evil that, oh, well, you got to do business with this or that guy in order to deliver this programming. But in the end, by doing it that way, and I'm not a purist, I'm not saying, you know, you, you have to eradicate all corruption before you can do development work, but I became very adamant that the order, there was a structuring of how how the U.S. intervention, you know, was kind of focused, a sequencing, and it was sort of security, development, governance. And I'm like, you got the order wrong. It's governance, security, development. Because you can't get security or development until you have governance. And I fought that really, really, really hard and not successfully. I think that the um, mindset has shifted significantly in official U.S. and other government actors, um, I would say, in the last two years. But, boy, this was a tough uh, battle to fight during those years. So what happened, um, once I really started to understand who the Karzais were and what they were about, I broke away and founded my own organization, really focused on trying to just expand economic opportunity. So that was a what was the organization? Um, and it still exists. It's called Argand, and it um, produces skincare products from licit local agriculture. So the point was to try to expand the market for the really amazing licit um, products that are grown in, in southern Afghanistan. It's a desert, but due to very sophisticated underground irrigation, it is one of the most incredible places for fruit that you've ever been. And so we were extracting oils and essential oils from those local ingredients. And we make soaps and lotions mostly for export, although the internal market has expanded. And we're currently thinking about a very significant um, kind of expansion and professionalization. I have to confess that as I have gotten more sucked into the policy world starting about 2008, 2009, I haven't been providing the leadership that um, it would need to really start mm -hmm. making a dent in the growing world of, I would say, um, committed businesses and mission-driven businesses. So, and it's one of the early ones. And so... In, in uh, an environment that is though so rife with corruption, how do you carve out like your licit sphere? As how a did you foreigner, as, as, this? Yeah. as a foreigner, you can say no. Uh, it was much harder for my Afghan staff mm -hmm. to say no to the corrupt, um, um, you know, um, demands being made on them. But I could come in and back them up. Um, and it is very, very complex because this is also a destructured society and culture. This is a culture that has been warped and bent and and sorry. This is a culture that's been warped and 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 um, distorted by now 30 years of war. And 30 years of, of war um, rewards certain behaviors that aren't necessarily the right behaviors to build a peaceful and stable society. So that was always really hard down to, you know, don't use the pliers as a hammer because the pliers is going to break. And then we don't have appliers. But if you're in a combat situation all the time, you're doing whatever you need to do right this second to get like this instance mm -hmm. job done. And, and those types of habits, I mean, it really gets down to that level. And unfortunately, it's a society that has been pitted against itself. Um, by the wars. And so there's a lot of internal jealousy. It became a very difficult management um, prospect. And as we think about expanding Argand into potentially some other abraded, if you will, um, communities and cultures, these are some of the lessons we're going to have to carry forward. Again, good intentions aren't enough. You uh, also have to create a, um, a working environment that is of high standards. Uh, at, at what point uh, did you feel compelled to want to work directly with the U.S. government then in Afghanistan? 
I began by doing trainings for um, incoming headquarters elements. I mean, for me, the military was the most important player, even though I'm a civilian and I believe in civilian rule and stuff like that. But if you wanted to make a difference in how the international community was 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 interacting with this environment, you had to go to the military. And so I began by training headquarters elements, and that then creates relationships. And then when I would be going out, you know, to the airfield to ship soap, you know, to the United States, I'd do the rounds and basically constantly try to inform military leadership about, you know, what the real situation on the ground was and what ordinary Afghans were saying. And eventually, because of that, I got hired first by the commander of NATO and then by the ISAF command and then eventually by the chairman of Joint Chiefs, Admiral Mike Mullen. And that was a really interesting career period because I was Frankly, I was based in two hostile environments, one of them being the Pentagon and the other being Kandahar. And whenever I couldn't take one, I would, you know, bail and go to the other. So so Admiral Mullen was a very hands-off um, boss, if you will. He trusted me to add value where I could, and he trusted me to insert reality as I understood it. And that really was my job for him, was give him an alternate source of information about what was going on other than his hierarchy, because he knew how um, filtered a lot of the information he was privy to was. So very often um, he would run things by me. He would say, what's your take on this? When he was getting a product from somebody, he would run it by me. Um, and I, you know, and, and then when I couldn't take the Pentagon anymore, I'd say, boss, I'm going downrange. And he would basically say, be safe. Um, and that was a very remarkable position to be in because also, although I was a federal government employee and there are security restrictions, he basically understood that I was exempt. Mm -hmm. He trusted me to take care and do you, not was there like do a specific, idiotic maybe like non-classified thing you can discuss about like an, an issue that you saw the u.s government getting wrong or or people you know news that was that was sort of filtering up to him that was just wrong or strategy that was wrong that you tried to insert yourself into there were a couple i mean on the more military side of things and this wasn't to him it was to isaf command um the decision to surge troops u.s troops when the decision to surge U.S. troops into the south was made, the initial surge was into Helmand province. That was not a useful province. It's a rich province because it's an opium. It's a place where there's a lot of opium. But if you had an understanding of the kind of history of Afghanistan, you had to know that Kandahar... Kandahar was the capital. Kandahar was the first capital of the country, and it was the Taliban capital, and it was clearly a strategic objective. And so um, what happened was the initial focus on Helmand province allowed the Taliban to really come and dominate um, the area around Kandahar, and that then required a second surge to sort of loosen the noose around Kandahar. Sometimes I would get really down into the nitty gritty, like there was a decision to put in a brigade that had a certain type of very advanced mechanized vehicle um, that had been used um, in Baghdad um, that was totally, totally inappropriate to the landscape in Afghanistan. And I felt a little awkward saying, you do not want to put, you know, deploy this unit here because it's the whole competitive advantage around which this unit is built is going to be inoperable in this particular district. You would do better to have an infantry um, brigade that's walking. And you're telling um, like military people this. And yes, you're, I am. You're, like, right. Civilian. Yeah. I mean, so it was pretty crazy. I mean, even before I worked for um, the U.S., there was a period when I knew the district immediately north of Kandahar was going to fall because the tribal elder who really held sway there had died. He was a friend of mine. He had died of a heart attack. And I knew the Taliban were going to go after this district. And I went, it was a British um, two-star general. And I went in saying, you have got to protect, you know, Argandab district. And uh, all my pals were former Mujahideen commanders. So I actually went to them with maps and I said they had defended that region against the Russians. So they knew exactly how to fight in this region. And so I said, what would you do if you were the ISAF commander or sorry, if you were the um, uh, regional commander? How would you prevent this inevitable Taliban attack here? And they said, oh, that's easy. You put, you know, um, 
basically 20 men here and 20 men here because there's only two ways you can come down from the mountains into this district. So it's very, you just have to cut off. There's no other way they can come down. You just cut off this line of communication. And I argued that unsuccessfully. So I argued very, always unsuccessfully, but not always, but nearly always, Um, partly maybe because I was such an unexpected messenger. And I do remember sometimes General McChrystal saying, why am I hearing one thing from everybody else and something separate from you? And I wish I had had the presence of mind to answer because I'm the only one you're talking to who has unmediated interaction with ordinary Afghans. I'm the only person who advises you who speaks Pashto and is accessible without a security detail. Um, but what I really focused my energy on was this governance issue. Mm-hmm. And that's also where I just saw, I mean, I saw intelligence actually um, um, deformed. I watched uh, an intelligence team reverse the order of priorities, for example, that Taliban prisoners had said were their motivating priorities. There was a list, and I literally saw... No, it was why they had joined the Taliban. Mm -hmm. What were the reasons they had joined the Taliban? And there was a list, and it was a bullet-pointed list. Granted, it wasn't a numbered list. But when that information was transmitted to Admiral Mullen, the intelligence team that transmitted it to him reversed the order of the list. And he, that was one of the cases where he looked at me and said, what, what do you think about this, Sarah? And this was actually a meeting. And I was just enraged because I had seen the primary documents that they were working off of. And I said, you know, what caused you to reverse the order of this? Because it's misleading. Um, and so those types of things, um, I had also provided literally a governance plan for Kandahar to general Petraeus, um, telling him, if you're going to surge troops in here, you also need to do a governance surge. And I must have, he asked me to iterate that plan. He asked me to revise that plan three times before I realized that he was just, it was make work. He had no intention of doing any of this. So so, so it was really interesting. So at what point then did you decide to put this all down in in books, uh, including Thieves of State, uh, and take the lessons of um, Afghanistan and apply them more broadly throughout the world? It was really interesting in in either late 2009 or early 2010 i gave a talk to um this was actually a counter narcotics talk to uh, narcotics officers from about 45 different countries and i kind of laid on them my growing realization or analysis of the government of afghanistan as actually functioning as a criminal organization where narcotics was just one of the revenue streams they were capturing. I just felt that you couldn't just talk about narcotics. You had to look at narcotics as a piece of a bigger puzzle, which was this criminalization of the entire power structure. And I I was stunned at the reaction I got because I had been with my nose down the Afghanistan rabbit hole for the previous, you know, eight, nine years. And all of these people erupted into applause, actually saying, you just described my country. And then I looked at where they came from, and they all came from countries where there was a violent extremist movement. And I said, oh, my God, this isn't just an Afghanistan issue. And that's where I started realizing this is a global phenomenon. And then the Arab Spring happened, you know, in early 2011, Admiral Mullen sent me out onto the ground and a, and a um, uh, movement that had been seen from the U.S. as to do with kind of anonymous economic or demographic forces, the youth bulge and unemployment and stuff like that. When I got on the ground, everyone was talking about corruption. Everyone had pictures of their, you know, government officials behind bars. That was their, you know, that was, those were their banners in their, in their marches. And I said, this is an anti-corruption movement. Um, and, and that's when I really understood. And then I, you know, as I started doing research, um, I realized that there was a moment for every country when people felt like their country had gone off the rails. And it was usually somewhere in the mid-1990s. And that's where you start to understand that this is a global phenomenon that's probably related in some way to the kind of collapse of communism and exaltation of money as a value 
um, that started unfurling in the 1980s and 1990s. And I believe that all of us are still experiencing the, the implications of this, including in the United States and other Western countries, where, where you know, the number of zeros in your bank account is becoming one of the very... Um, one of the sole kind of markers of social success, and that is leading to the type of behavior that brought about the financial crisis of 2008. And I think we're seeing some of the backlash against this, even here in Western countries, in the form of populist political movements, um, and even some pretty extreme political movements in some European countries. And so, that's where I really feel that what I saw in a very concentrated way in Afghanistan has incredible relevance to a whole range of countries today. Uh, well, Sarah, that was absolutely fascinating. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for the questions. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Sarah. And I would be remiss if I did not suggest, recommend that you make a contribution to the podcast. Uh, we do have some advertising, which is great. It's just not enough to keep this thing going. So if you have the capacity, I would so appreciate, so love your support. So go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and just click on the support the show link. All right. We'll see you soon. Bye.